What would lead a black trauma surgeon to take the huge leap and run for U.S. Congress? We're about to find out. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. America thrives on stories of individual heroism. We thrive on the myth of rugged individualism. On the uh, network news each night, the kickers that come in the end are virtually always stories of people in desperate situations overcoming unthinkable odds. We celebrate them. This dynamic has the effect of making those of us who are lucky enough to avoid poverty and injustice feel lots better. See, if, if people work hard enough and persevere, oh, anyone can overcome racism, discrimination, and poverty. What this does is make us feel better about our reality of what's actually systemic racism. Sure, a few remarkable people do exceed, but hundreds of millions of citizens of color are not those exceedingly rare heroes, nor are any of us. What TV shows is that, well, if these people can overcome terrible odds, why can't everybody? What we really don't want to see is our ongoing history, a country still struggling to reconcile our aspirational democratic ideals with our racist origins and systems, so much of which is simply built into many aspects of how our national economy really works. We'll hear about that today. Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive is Brian Williams, whose new book is The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. In her review in the New York Times, Mary Carr writes, Brian Williams tells the riveting stories about traumas inherent in our country while laying out how racism infects and weakens our healthcare systems. She says, this is a page-turner's, a page-turner. As, as all doctors need to do, Williams looks beyond the most obvious symptoms of a disease and diagnoses the roots of the violence that plagues us so terribly. He plots a through line between white supremacy, gun violence, and the bodies he tries to revive. And he trains his surgeon's gaze on the structural ills that manifest themselves in the bodies of his patients. For example, what if racism is a feature of our health system, not a bug? And what if profiting from racial, racial inequality is exactly what it was designed to do? Mm, we don't want to see that, but perhaps it's real. As a Harvard-trained surgeon, Brian Williams has learned to keep his head down and his scalpel ready. As a black man, he learned to swallow the rage when patients told him to take out the trash. Just days after the tragic police shootings of two black men in July of 2016, Williams tried to save the lives of white police officers shot in Dallas in the deadliest incident for U.S. law enforcement since 9-11. Thrust into the spotlight in a nation that loves feel-good stories about heroism, more than hard truths about racism, Williams came to rethink everything he thought he knew about medicine, injustice, and what true healing looks like. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Dr. Williams. To use these skills and training and intention that led you to become a doctor in deciding to write this book. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your time today and having me on the show, Bert. 
And yeah, when I wrote this book, uh, I, I I had grand ambitions with the book. I wanted to draw you as a reader into this world. So there's a lot of storytelling. You know, my world as a trauma surgeon on the front lines of uh, gun violence and health inequity. Uh, my world as a black man uh, navigating. Uh, you know, interpersonal racism and the things I see in, in society, uh, but also talk about broken systems and how we can fix them. And it, in the end, the book is meant to be, it's meant to be hopeful. It's meant to be about healing and how we as individuals and communities and as a nation can come together to just create a just society. Mm. And I suppose that's what doctors do as well, fixing broken systems, i.e. our <laughs> bodies, which uh, can really mess up. I, I show you from my own experience for that. No, that's actually a good analogy. I just, you know, uh, the body has a system that needs to be fixed and healed, uh, but expanding that more broadly to the systems uh, in which we live, our, our communities, our, um, you know, where we worship, where we play, where we uh, get educated, uh, how these systems actually contribute to our individual health. Yeah, and if we don't do that, uh, it's hard, if not impossible, to really heal. I mean, you got to look at the causes of these things. And not all listeners can imagine some of the surprising affronts you experienced as being the only black doctor in a trauma department. Tell us, please, about some of the pressures and unique aspects that came with that. Yeah, you, you would think that after having served in the military, uh, gone to medical school, and basically checking off all the boxes that we expect people to do in America to be considered a success and to be accepted, that uh, it's kind of shocking that I still experience uh, racism in my day-to-day -day, uh, personal life, but also in, at work. And I describe instances from when I was a medical student to when I was a trainee, and even to, up to when I was an attending, of the affronts that I had to deal with. You know, being called racial slurs, for sure. Mm. Um, having patients uh, say they want to have the real doctor um, come see them, when I am a doctor, or I walk into a room and I'm asked to remove half-eaten trays of food or take out the trash. Uh, and this is not just unique. I mean, many people have these similar stories, right? I just, I just kind of put them on paper just to to try to get you invested in the story on a humanistic level. Mm. That way, as you go along with this journey, while I'm telling you these things, we start looking at a much bigger issues, the healthcare crisis, the epidemic of gun violence, uh, structural racism, through these eyes and these stories, and then think, okay, how do we address this on a macro level? Mm. Yeah, we have to do that. And uh, well, you this is you haven't written a book before, have you? I mean, this is uh, it's a big deal to write a book, right? This this is the first book I wrote. That is correct. I did not intend to set out to write a, a book, um, but I you know, I really began to change personally and professionally after the mass shooting of police officers that you, you mentioned, which happened seven summers ago. And I was the trauma surgeon on call when 14 police officers were shot in Dallas. Seven were brought to the hospital where I was working, and three of whom we cared for died due to their injuries. And it was the night I had to do something I've done way too many times in my career as the trauma surgeon, 
which is change out of bloody scrubs, put on clean scrubs, button up my white coat, and go into a room and deliver the bad news to mm. mother and father about the death of their child. And it was after that, doing that, I actually found a quiet corner to myself, and I fell to the floor and was crying. I mean, I was convulsively crying. Um, but at the moment, I realized, you know, there's only so much I can do in the hospital, and I have to do more. And it was the aftermath of this tragedy where I decided I had to somehow integrate this event into my life and do some good. And what can I do outside the hospital to address these broken systems that you uh, earlier mentioned? Mm. So I guess apparently it's known as 7-7 in Dallas, like 9-11 for the rest of the country. And uh, it's interesting. At first, you didn't want to take part in the news conference that the Parkland Hospital had called in order to describe the hospital's response to 7-7. Why, why, did, why didn't you? You did eventually participate. How did that news conference and your comments change everything that followed? Yeah, there was a news a press conference four days after the shooting to describe the um, hospital response to this event. And I refused to attend. Uh, first of all, it was a traumatic event for me, and I was still reliving it nonstop um, in my mind. I did not want to be in front of cameras and microphones and strangers reliving this event. Um, also, I just I I felt that they could handle this conference without me. I just had no desire to attend. It was actually my wife when I told her I was not going to go. She is the one that said, "You have to be there." get over yourself. This is about something much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And she was right. You know, there were at that time, if you recall, that was in the days following the deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Um, that's where there were protests around the country. There was the mass shooting about a month before in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. So there are a lot of things happening in regards to gun violence and racial justice and policing that were dominating the news at the time. And she said, you know, you have to be there so people can see that there is a black doctor mm-hmm. trying to save these police officers because right now, black men are being vilified uh, in the press. Wow. Yeah, we... Sometimes it, it's... As, as I think most of us know, as we get older and become alleged adults, you know, we recognize this somehow. Sometimes we have to go through our fears and our, go through our, our difficulties. And, and it's not about us particularly, but we all have something to do with some, you know, responsibility that if, if we're in a situation and something happens, you know, we can't, we can't just duck it. We could duck it, but what good does that do if we want to do something about it? And it sounds like you did. You're about to say something. Go ahead. My reasons were all about, about fear and self-protection, about not wanting to be there. And my wife's pretty clear that, you know, you have to do something because this is bigger than you. And I think that's a message for all of us. We all, we all can make change if we just show up. We have to actually first show up where we're needed to make a difference. Yes, it does make a difference. It absolutely does make a difference. And your book, uh, The Bodies Keep Coming, is there's a lot of stories in there, personal stories. And that personal stories are a very good way of communicating that other methods of writing don't necessarily do it. 
and add back back to uh, seven seven in Dallas, your work to save the lives of those Dallas police officers. Uh, as a result of that, your life became connected. And here's where a story comes in to that of Micah Johnson, the black veteran who shot the police officers. Tell us, please, about the mixture of feelings you have whenever you think of him. Tell us about that, please. This was this was this was a part of the complexities of this tragedy. I'll be very clear: any life lost to gun violence is one too many. We just something yes. we we can avoid. But on on this tragedy, we had a black sniper who ambushed white police officers at a what was initially a peaceful protest for racial justice. And these police officers, many of them ended up under the care of a black trauma surgeon. So on one end, we have a black person trying to kill these officers. And on the other end, you had one who was working with the team to try to save them. Uh, so this is the complexity and the mix of emotions I had about this, which is which led to me speaking out at the press conference. Because at the press conference, None, none of the issues I felt were important were being discussed. It was a very straightforward, sterile press conference, but I felt like we have to talk about gun violence. We have to talk about racism. We have to talk about policing because that all fed into this and it's getting worse. And if we can't talk about it, how can we ever stop it? So that was the internal dialogue I had in my head mm. at the press conference before the mic was pushed to me and I spoke. I had no speaking role in the beginning, but I did speak. These were unprepared remarks uh, and they came from the heart in the moment and they resonated. They, they just, it just took off. And from that moment on, my life of comfortable anonymity was over. <laughs> a life of comfortable anonymity is very attractive, isn't it? But sometimes you got to step outside that and, and push the, uh, the envelope out of the uh, comfort zone. The people who got shot, the people, the guy who did the shooting, <laughs> that wasn't comfortable for any of those people, and yet it happens. That's making change doesn't come easy. That's for sure. Otherwise, it's not really a significant change. And uh, d directed toward others when you were a child, your anger over racial injustice ha had been pent up and kept inside for a long time. You call it my strength and my weakness, my comfort and my pain. Say more about that, please. Yeah, I, I definitely had a lot of pent-up anger from the continued uh, racist uh, incidents I'd experienced since a child. Uh, as a child, I led to a lot of fistfights. And just to be clear, Bert, I was I was not a big kid. I was a squatty kid, so uh, I was frequently overmatched in, in these fights. But that was my release back then. Was you call me a name, the fight's on. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly not a, yeah, I would say it's not a a healthy way to deal with that sort of anger. So I describe it as my strength and my weakness. Uh, I now use that anger as a means to I kind of channel that to do good. So that is where the strength comes from. But it's also weakness because uh, that anger has led me to keep my distance from a lot of people mm. over the course of my life. It's my comfort and my pain. It's uh, I've now you know, embraced how I can use this anger for good. But it's, it's 
it's, it's painful because who wants to be angry all the time? Mm. Uh, so that's why I try to, I try to describe that dichotomy of this emotion that I think really conjures up negative feelings within people, but how, if it's there, what are you going to do? Right. I can let it either consume me or channel into good. So I'm, I'm trying to channel that into good. Wow. Yeah. That's tough to do, but, uh, it's we have we have to learn that or most of the time i think people don't learn that actually but because uh, right. anger can, can uh, obviously consumes the person who has the anger as well uh for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive our guest today is uh dr brian williams whose new book is the bodies keep coming dispatches from a black trauma surgeon on racism violence and how we heal and he's had some experiences that changed his life. And the training as, as a doctor, it, you, it, it's unique training, that's for sure. And you mentioned the three A's essential to a doctor's success, ability, affability, and approachability. And as a patient myself, I can agree. Those are some important qualities. Has How did those, those three A's pave the way for your success as well as delay your willingness to tackle racism's hard truths? Yeah, I, I, I got into medicine with the with certain ideas of how I was going to help people. You know, my prior career, excuse me, my prior career, I was an aeronautical engineer. I, I served in the Air Force as an Air Force officer, uh, as an engineer, had no intent to, to become a doctor. Uh, to when I changed careers into to medicine, uh, it's you know to continue rising up the hierarchy. Uh, skill is certainly important, right? Uh, you want to be able to help patients, not harm them, right. and also to be successful within the realm of medicine uh, for patients and for your colleagues. I mentioned those three A's, and for me, I guess I would add a fourth A that allowed me to assimilate. <laughs> So assimilation was an important part of this. And to assimilate, I uh, had to, I felt that I had to be non-threatening. Uh, you know, black men, there's so few black male doctors. And uh, I carried this, this thing that I was also an important uh, tip of the spear for those coming up behind me yeah. as well. Uh -huh. And understanding that sometimes the mistakes of one are, are considered to be the faults of an entire group. And I didn't want to be part of that. And I also didn't want to bring any attention to myself. I wanted to come to work, do my job, get the job done, and uh, at the end of the day, go home with no drama. So those three A's plus assimilating, um, but at the cost of being my authentic self. You know, I had to give up a part of who I was to achieve that level of success. And that is something um, that I think is part of the post-traumatic growth is how do I be, bring my full self to the table to serve society and help make the world a better place. Yeah, it sounds like the, these experiences and your experiences, the only uh, black trauma doctor, uh, did uh, serve painfully as it was to, to make you stronger and to uh, help, you know, give new things for you to do that uh, uh, move the agenda forward. And it's difficult as all heck, but yeah, they did that. Absolutely, Bert. 
I mean, you mentioned like being the only black trauma surgeon. Also, on that night of the shooting, that was my night off. Yeah. I my um partner asked me to take his shift, so I agreed to take his shift that night, which put me there when this uh, mass shooting happened. And I think about that. I think about that one decision for me to say yes, and how that changed the trajectory of my life um, afterwards. Because when I said no. Uh, that the, the, the mass shooting probably still would have happened. We still would have this tragedy in Dallas, but I would not be central, centered in that story in any way. Mm. Right, because it's not about the individuals, as as we find right. out later on. Even though individuals have to take action and, and do things and uh, combine together to uh, to help make change, and forty years before a police officer gunned down 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland in a Cleveland park. <sighs> I still, uh, your mother forbade you from playing with toy guns when you were a kid. This is something you and I share. I am forever grateful for my parents and the upbringing on this. Say more about that, be, be, you know, being uh, forbidden to play with toy guns. Clearly, my mother knew about this unseen menace that would be a threat to my life, uh, something I didn't appreciate as a child. Right, uh, of course. Go ahead. Right, I just did what she did. I did, I did what she said. You don't get to play toy guns? And I said, okay. I understand now why that is, because um, you know, black men, black boys are considered a threat. Uh, I think Tamir Rice is mm. one example of that. Um and we had many others. Uh, you know, Trayvon Martin is another example. Yes. Uh, these are just the ones that just make the news, right? What what doesn't make the news that we don't know about? Um, but my mother was clear, like I'm going to protect you, and here's one. And here's one reason. Here's how I'm going to do with this one thing. You will not get to play with toy guns. That, that yeah. And as you you say, I mean, I, I wonder how many. I mean, the the uh, cameras, the cell phones that we all carry these days, and they recorded. Uh, you know, the, the murder of George Floyd, et cetera, et cetera. How many hundreds, if not thousands, of those examples have there been without the cameras being there? And, uh, exactly. Oh, we need to be aware. <laughs> my, mom did this in the, my mom did this in the 70s, right? In the 70s, long before uh, cell phones being everywhere. She knew. She right. Knew. I, I must tell you, a, a black friend of mine was playfully yes illegally racing another car on a highway well when he got pulled over what a surprise he got pulled over he instinctively put both hands on the car door because he was black this kind right. of stuff it's just i'm a white person i you know i'm not aware of these experiences you recount bullying being pulled over by a police officer near the Florida Air Force Base where you were stationed in the early 1990s. And that wasn't your first nor your last tense interaction with police. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, could, I, I feared for my life, right? I feared for my life when I was pulled over by the um, police officer. And I think that's something that, you know, it's hard for people to fathom. The one I described in the book, which was I was in my Air Force uniform driving back to the base when I was pulled over for speeding and they asked to get out of the car, hands on the hood, do that whole thing. But I knew that even if I did everything right, that could end bad, right? Yes. It's also, it didn't matter that I was an Air Force officer. You know, I, I was, you know, black man uh, speeding and treated that way. 
and the thing is, I, you know, I don't know was I just targeted or, you know, was it all legitimate or there was an overkill that had to get out of the car and put my hands on the hood. Who knows? But this is something, the mental gymnastics that occurs frequently. And I just grabbed another event later here in Dallas where I was standing in front of my apartment complex when the police called up, the police rolled up, asked me for my identification, et cetera. But I learned later that someone had seen me standing there and called the police and said, hey, there's a bald black man acting suspiciously. And all I was doing was standing there mm. waiting for my ride to the airport. So mm. it happens at all it happens at all levels. And the reason I use those stories was to describe just the the fear I have and how I you know I've talked about this at the press conference when I described how I felt, but also say, look, I respect the job police officers do. Uh, I'm a veteran myself. I've worn the uniform. All these things can be true together. That I fear them, but I also want to save their lives and they're injured by gun violence as I did on that night. That uh, I act certain ways when I'm in the car, but also if I see them out, I will pick up the tab for their meals. Uh, this is all things I do. Um, there's a lot of nuance in there, but in the end, it's, I think we all just want to be recognized for our our humanity, right? We all just want to be accepted for who we are. And I'm just trying to bring that through with these stories and try to bring you in to understand what it's like uh, on a day-to-day basis, mm. navigating the world I'm navigating. Yeah, we can read about it in the news, but hearing the stories, the actual stories, that that does make a difference. That communicates in a way that nothing else can do. And as people who listen to this show regularly know, I'm kind of a history buff. And this country's history, like so many different situations, it's both uplifting and depressing. You know, history, I believe, moves in many different directions simultaneously. It gets better, it gets worse. I don't know. It's It's not easy. Those who... In terms of, of history, those who fought in the War of Independence back in the 18th century did so not for any vision of equality and justice for all. They fought for independence and for, you know, keeping the white people on this side of the ocean uh, in charge of everything. <sighs> Your great-great-great-grandfather, I hope I got enough greats in there, fought what? for the <laughs> Union— and your great-great-great-grandfather fought for the Union was emancipated only to see the promise of Reconstruction decimated by the blatantly racist redemption movement, a sentiment which President Andrew Johnson enthusiastically shared, bringing back the power of the uh, Old South. Mm. Your great-grandfather fought in the First World War only return to return to ugly Jim Crow. And your grandfather returned from World War II excluded from benefits of the GI Bill. In fact, it seems like an unbroken line of Williams family members, including you, served in the armed forces going all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And yet, here we are still so far from our post-Civil War aspirations, as stated so clearly by President Lincoln. Why such sacrifices for a country that has so consistently given non-whites such pain? This is a question I, I, I wonder sometimes. I mean, it's, it's simple, Bert. I, I love this country. right? Uh, and I, I criticize and I point out where we can improve. It's out of love, right? My family has served in the armed forces going back generations, as you mentioned. We believe in the ideals and aspirations that are professed in all of our historical documents. 
but we also recognize that many of those have been denied, and I, I do as well, denied to uh, those of us that have served. But what's the, we, we don't give up. We, we continue right. to show up to push the country to manifest those ideals. And I think that is what true love of America is. That is what patriotism means, is when you know that so much has been denied and you still show up because you believe in what we stand for. You believe in these ideals of life, liberty, and justice for all. And we continue to serve to, to, to make that yeah. happen. And uh, it's, 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 it's so clear to me that that is a, a path forward. We can look at our history to understand our present, to chart that path towards hope and healing in the future. And we can't give up on our aspirations. I mean, we can give up, but what's the point there? And why, why do that? And we're not there yet. Uh, you know, so the vision of so many people, you know, throughout the, uh, the struggles for equal rights, uh, they didn't give up. They didn't give up. We have to focus on our aspirations. We have to do that. We're not there yet, but uh, I, I just personally think it's wrong to do so. It's, it's not the moral thing to do, in my opinion, is to give up on those aspirations because they're reasonable and good aspirations. And talk about your experience in the military. As a young officer, when the Rodney King verdict was announced, you attempted to explain the rioting and violence that followed to your fellow airmen, uh, including uh, white uh, airmen as well. What did you say? And while, while you recognized the common, your commonality with the rioters, you also felt yourself different. Talk about that, please. What was that like, talking to your white uh, fellow airmen about uh, the Rodney King verdict? Exactly. We were watching the, uh, the, uh, the riots on TV, so we saw the destruction, the fires, the beatings. And one of my colleagues turned to me and asked, well, why would they do that to their own communities? Which I think is a, something, a trope we've frequently heard. And I, trying, trying to channel you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., said, hey, a riot is a language of the unheard. Right. These are people that feel uh, unseen, unheard, abused. And this is the only way they can they can uh, get the word out. And um, you know, my colleague replied. He said, "Look, there are n words, and then mm -hmm. there are people like you. Those people are the n word. You are not. So it was it was a way of dichotomizing black people from someone whom I considered a close friend." But, you know, he said the quiet part out loud, which got, gave me some pause. But also, I talked about this in the book, was part of my, my growth, was that, you know, at the time, I did feel I was somewhat different because I went to college, I was focused on my studies and serving the country. So, yeah, maybe I was a bit different than everybody else. Um, but I also felt some, I also felt that internalized anger and wanting to, to lash out to create change. So I, I said I could identify with them on that regard. But I knew that we were all going to be painted with this broad brush of being evil and destructive because of those riots. And that's what concerned me. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Brian Williams, whose new book is The Bodies Keep Coming. Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. A Unique Perspective. Uh, on, on the medical system, what's going on uh, with 
that aspect. And it was interesting that uh, we, we earlier said that uh, racism may be a feature, not a bug, of our healthcare system. We have a any, I, I've never spoken to a doctor who didn't uh, complain about the, the healthcare system and the power of the insurance industry, the for-profit insurance industry. I suspect you feel the same. Uh, but uh, uh, how is it, how is systemic racism in the, it's not a, how is it not a bug, but a feature of our healthcare system? How is, how is racism implicit in our medical system? this is where it's very important for us to study our history. And I think as far as medical trainees, that it's actually taught in medical school. I talk about how in the book, the techniques I've learned and the knowledge I teach to the trainees, how much of that was gained by the exploitation of black people and black bodies throughout our medical uh, history. Uh, for example, I, I think many of your listeners will know about the Tuskegee mm-hmm. uh, study. But this is back to this understand that that was just one of many, and that was a study that was done by the federal government who denied treatment to black men to discover, to um, study latent syphilis. But other examples, J. Marion Sims, who's considered the father of obstetrics, he did truly barbaric vaginal surgeries on vaginal operations on enslaved women without anesthesia. And these women were held down and screaming while he did his operations. And he perfected techniques and tools, surgical tools that are used to this day. So the knowledge gained uh, is still being caught today and used, but at the price of sacrificing part of our humanity to get that. And it's not just ancient history. We have studies that were done up into the 80s where there was forced sterilization of young black women and sometimes without their consent. Uh, so medicine has gained a lot by exploiting and abusing the trust of black people, many of whom had no say in what was happening. And that is part of the ugly side of, of medicine. And that's how you know systemic racism is still inherent in the system because we have such huge, tremendous disparities in race as far as life expectancy, late-stage diagnoses of certain diseases, treatment of diseases, and the healthcare system has to understand our role in that, but we're also part of the solution as well. And that's where I try to take the book tour. Let's talk about how we're going to correct this for future generations. Mm. You remind me, of course, of Dr. Joseph Mengele, who performed surgery on his uh, victims uh, back in, you know, in the Nazi era. But we're talking about America here and the use use of black people uh, who wouldn't be used otherwise, you know, and and the same thing was true with the Native Americans as well, uh, probably to a lesser extent. But to have to realize that that is part and parcel of, of, you know, how these discoveries were made, boy, we got to do something about that. We have we have to learn the history, and as I often say, people are probably tired of hearing it. The one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. We just right. we just don't. Um, but uh, I, I remember, you know, guns. You know, it, it's I think a big big problem here. There are millions of Americans who insist that guns are not the problem. Any and all 
uh, uh, things, laws, pieces of legislation that may affect uh, gun possession by people who really shouldn't have certain guns, uh, they see as, oh, no, that's an attack on the Second Amendment. It's not true. Let's look at the role of firearms in America's long, ongoing history of racial violence. On one level, a gunshot wound is a life-threatening hole in the body, or sometimes uh, bigger than a hole, as you unfortunately know. On another level, a gunshot wound illuminates a complex system of upstream social ills. Please illuminate us on that. Well, I, I try, a couple of things about gun violence that I wanted to bring across in the book was that we have multiple types of gun violence that have different root causes and require different solutions. Whether they're suicides, mass shootings, homicides, intimate partner violence, or unintentional shootings. But I also want to bring this other thread that I feel we need to discuss more, and that is how race and racism is inherent in our gun policies and in whom we consider to be uh, worthy victims <laughs> when it comes to who's shot and killed and injured. Um, and I think a really good source for this, I'll just shout out a book, is a, it's called The Second by Carol Anderson, which talks about how uh, the Second Amendment and gun policy for much of our history has been one, about providing a means of violent control of black people yes. going back throughout our history, and also a means of preventing black people from <laughs> being able to own our firearms themselves for yes. their own protection. So that's inherent in the policies that our government has um, supported for, for many, many uh, hundreds of years. Now we live in an era where there are significant disparities in race in certain types of gun violence, homicides, Within 24 hours of this interview, half of the homicides will be young black men. But let's talk about what, let's talk about suicides. Suicides account for two thirds of all deaths due to guns. And most suicides are committed by elderly white men. So race is inherent in many of our gun violence statistics. I just want to ensure that we are elevating all of the voices of people who are impacted and not ignoring anyone because we're, this impacts us all in some way. Yeah, guns, they certainly make it easy for suicide. That's for sure. If, if people, it's much more difficult to do suicide without a gun. And right. it, it affects so many people, so many families. And you, you talk about gun ownership and racism. And I, I'm old enough to remember when the Black Panthers very publicly armed themselves after many, many police murders of black people, the image frightened a lot of white people. After all, in this country, white men with guns see themselves as patriots. Police are protectors. The thin blue line. Uh, and, and as we see this uh, 2024 campaign going forward, people uh, talk about uh, more, more power to the, uh, to the thin blue line, to, to police. And, you know, police are there to protect her, to, to protect people. White men with guns are patriots. But, of course, black men are criminals. Right. Does that system of beliefs affect you and your work as a doctor? It, I, mean, I think it's important for people to, when they think about gun ownership, who do they consider to be the protectors, the patriots, the threats, the criminals, but also who are the, when we talk about victims, who 
are worth, victims worthy of our empathy and those that deserved what they got. So it impacts me just as, on a human level. Uh, I see it as a doctor, but also as a scholar and someone who wants to be part of the solution. I, I see all that. And I mean, one example is Trayvon Martin, right? Trayvon Martin yes. was unarmed, shot and killed by George Zimmerman, uh, who claimed stand your ground and was acquitted. But it's the after after that that the the murder weapon that he used, he auctioned that weapon, and someone reportedly paid a quarter of a million dollars to have that weapon. So within that, there's a tremendous statement about the value we place on black people, that someone could make money off of the weapon they used to kill an unarmed and innocent teenager. That's what I'm going to talk about. We need to elevate all the voices in this gun violence debate so that we can give them some solutions. And part of that is recognizing that we cannot talk about gun violence or gun policy without talk, without talking about race and racism. Uh, for sure. And we have to look at that. that that's one thing about, uh, you know, uh, what's this DeSantis down in Florida wants to eliminate certain history books. He doesn't, the, the, the bad guys, the fascists don't want us to learn our history. Uh, that may not be a word that you're comfortable with, fascist. But I, yeah, I got the microphone, so I'm using it. <laughs> <laughs> it's your, it's your show, Bert. <laughs> I'm your guest. <laughs> they don't, they don't want us to learn the history. But that's one thing about being free is to learn our history, to to have the ability to read all kinds of books. Banning books, banning history, unacceptable. It just keeps the injustice alive, and. You learned a lot of things in in medical school. Uh, I, you know, I am not a doctor. That's for sure. I can't. It's somebody else can do that. That's not something that I do. Blood, forget about it. I can't do it. But you, <laughs> so among the things you learned in medical school uh, is that race. That you were taught that race is a risk risk factor for not only diabetes but also hypertension, heart attacks, and stroke. You now argue that race is not. A risk factor. Wow. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I, I cringe now when I hear about these terms, and it still happens today at medical conference that race is a risk factor for X, Y, or Z. But I say it is racism, as you and I were discussing earlier in the show about how structural racism puts certain groups at uh, risk for certain diseases and endemic violence. We know that most of what keeps us healthy occurs outside the hospital. So, for example, if you live in an area that's been divested of businesses and don't have access to uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, your your diet is impacted, therefore your health. If you don't have stable housing and your kids are bouncing around from school to school, that impacts your education. If you live in an area where there is low property value, uh. with property, you know, they can't fund public schools. So these all are interrelated, interconnected, and impact our health. So the real question is, not as race or risk factor, but why do we have so many racially segregated communities that are suffering? And the answer to that is that leaders in our country, going back generations, have instituted policies that were intended to segregate ourselves yes. uh, by race. And the, the effects still linger today. Redlining is the, the classic example yes. of how the government decided that neighborhoods of predominantly black uh, residents 
what is deemed unfavorable. They redlined them on the, the uh, realtor maps, okay. therefore didn't get the housing loans, property values dropped, uh, and generations later, those neighborhoods have the highest rates of disease, uh, gun violence, or de- or de- you know, people are just doing poorly in those areas, not because of any moral failing, mm-hmm. because access to the resources that are needed to keep us healthy and thriving have been denied. So it's time for us to reinvest, radically reinvest, not just remove the barriers, but go and help in collaboration with those that live there. What is it can we do to uplift entire communities? Yes, and I, I think it, it's not everybody understands, and I, I think it's kind of hard to understand necessarily sometimes, that how redlining and other things have affected our black citizens' ability to participate in the overall American economy. I mean, for most people, I mean, real estate, real estate isn't always a good investment, but usually, right. and if you're shut out of that market, for generations, that freezes one out of participating in the economy and being able to get ahead. And uh, again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Brian Williams, whose new book is The Bodies Keep Coming. I can't imagine. Dispatches from a black trauma surgeon on racism, violence, and how we heal. And one of the things that, I mean, America has grown tremendously uh, the population and and uh, it's spreading out all over the place all the time it amazes me anyway how planning is laid out in america shows many disturbing things for example the layout of highways they go generally through poor neighborhoods urban renewal or so-called progress often decimates neighborhoods uh, recycling centers uh, landfills Guess where they're located. But what about the geography of academic medical centers in this country? Are they generally located in predominantly African-American and poor urban areas as well? Yes, this was another disturbing thing I learned uh, long after I completed completed my medical training at academic uh, medical centers was that these academic school medical centers, which is where students go to medical school, where trainees go to learn their their, their craft, were located <clears throat> by intent near mm. black neighborhoods, uh, poor neighborhoods, neighborhoods where people had nowhere else to go for their care. And what it's described as, you know, we can take care of them at a you know at a discount. Mm. <laughs> uh, but it also allows students and trainees to learn, you know, the, 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 the practice of medicine. And that's part of the systemic, the, the systemic racism that still exists today. Decisions made back long before many of us were born still reverberate today. So I, I'm a product of that system. I, you know, I, I trained at these institutions. I saw what was happening and it's, it's made me a, a, a a, a surgeon, trauma surgeon that can actually be a healer, but also like, I wish I was taught this in medical school because I think it would have made me a, a different type of, of surgeon, a different type of teacher for sure. It's okay to understand and talk about this ugly history. It is necessary, but to, to avoid it and hide it is, is not a path toward progress. So if we're going to create health equity and ensure that every person can have some minimal level of health, 
we have to understand how the healthcare system itself has been part of creating the crisis that we are in, but can also be part of the solution. Boy, I would hope it could be part of the solution, and and we will get to that. And you mentioned how uh, there's there's hospitals that are meant to catch people who might otherwise fall between the cracks, these safety net so-called hospitals. But that doesn't mean they also don't also victimize those on the margins, these safety net hospitals. Uh, is it sort of, you know, as we said in the beginning, you know, feel good? Does it make uh, the, the people in charge of the system feel better because there's these safety net hospitals? And how, and, and how do they victimize those on the margins? Well, safety net hospitals exist to provide treatment for individuals that may not be able to afford health care right. or have access to a hospital. So for me, my career has been in urban settings with safety net hospitals. So primarily taking care of uh, those that are uninsured or underinsured. But these, these all can also can exist in rural areas where there are... Few, a few healthcare facilities, so a hospital there would be considered a safety net hospital. And I talk about this to look at the broader structure of healthcare is why do we even need a safety net hospital in the first place? We need it because our policies, we decided that we continue to dichotomize patients into those who deserve healthcare and can afford it and to those that do not. And because we've made that choice repeatedly, we have so many people who have no ability to pay for their health care, therefore the safety net is necessary. My thought is that what if we radically invested in the health of our communities and our country and make a decision about what is the minimal level of health we expect everyone to have and put the money towards keeping people healthy and happy in their, and thriving at home in their communities versus mm. waiting till they get sick to come to the hospital to treat them. Mm. That just kind of turns things up, up, you know, upside down. And that's why I use the safety net hospitals to describe this broader issue of health. How do we invest in health, the health of our communities and the country? Yeah, and that that I believe personally, I think that is important. That uh, you know, what kind of what kind of national security is it if we don't have, you know, healthy people and we just uh you know have two systems like a, a upper tier system and a lower tier system of health care that's that's not good for uh, the country and uh you have taken a big step okay dr brian williams is running for u.s congress <laughs> and, yes, yes. and here's an ad for the run when three police officers died on my watch, it nearly broke me. Those officers were protecting young people. Young people protesting the deaths of black men, innocent black men. In that moment, one thing was clear. We need change. And I want the Dallas police also see me, a black man, and understand that I support you, I will defend you, and I will care for you. That doesn't mean that I do not fear you. As a trauma surgeon, I've had to pronounce too many children dead on arrival due to gun violence, telling mothers and fathers they would never again see their child alive. I think about it every day, that I was unable to save those cops when they came here that night. This killing, it has to stop. We have to come together 
and in all this, I realized to protect our families, I had to work beyond the operating room. I chaired the Dallas Citizens Police Review Board, and we channeled our grief into building back trust between law enforcement and the community. After Uvalde, I helped Democratic leaders craft the first bipartisan gun safety law in nearly 30 years, a law that will make it harder for dangerous people to get a gun. But from the front lines, I can tell you, it shouldn't take a crisis to force Republicans to the table. We Democrats have to be relentless in the fight for what's right, even when it's hard. I'm running for Congress to stop these murders and the extremists who defend weapons of war on our streets. I'm Brian Williams. I'm asking you to help me be a voice for the people we've lost because we owe it to them to build the future we deserve. How do you believe being elected to Congress would help achieve the goal of reducing the awful physical trauma you've had to try to repair as a surgeon. How, how does that fit in with your overall uh, ad advancement through the years? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm running for Congress because the country is in a crisis. And as, a, as an Air Force officer, as a veteran, I've been taught to always respond during times of crisis. As a trauma surgeon, I've had to tell too many mothers and fathers about the loss of their children due to gun violence. I've had to pronounce too many children dead on arrival. And I've also seen the impact of policy on health care of my patients. So I'm running because there's only 19 doctors in Congress. We need more of us from the front lines with experience to help write the laws that keep us healthy. There's never been a trauma surgeon mm. in Congress. Mm. I'd be the first trauma surgeon. And I bring a perspective that's missing I, as a surgeon, but also as a veteran who's trained on these weapons, as someone who's lost family members to gun violence. This is something that's impacting the nation right now. We've had more mass shootings this year, over 500 so far. Um, we're on pace for a record. One in five people will be impacted by gun violence. So when you say, I'm like, why am I running for Congress? Because there's a perspective I can bring. I'm just answering the call uh, during this time. And uh, yeah, I start new. It's a, it's a viable, it's a viable front-running campaign right now. Uh -huh. And I invite you and your listeners to go to drbrianwilliamsforcongress.com to to learn more. We're looking for more people to join our team. I'm sure. And your your district is in Texas. Now that's not known as a liberal bastion in this country. Uh, I, I understand Austin is the blueberry floating in uh, tomato soup. But what, what about the district? What what who's what kind of chances are there of you getting in there? And I must say, even I, I you know, if you win, that's terrific. If you don't, you're still raising the issues. So tell us about this district and what your chances may be. Chances are very good in this district. It's in Dallas. Excellent. Good. <laughs> this is a district that is held by a Democrat and will likely be held up by a Democrat in the future. The issues I'm running on are issues that when I'm meeting the voters, they're talking about as well. Ah. Gun violence. We had a mass shooting it, you know, not too far from my district uh, earlier this year at the Allen Mall. Uh, healthcare affordability and accessibility issues I'm talking about, uh, reproductive freedom. So within this district, as I'm meeting voters, what matters to them are the issues that I'm talking about. But also, it's just, you know, they, they respect that we need more veterans in Congress mm. to bring back this ethos of service before self, how we serve something bigger than ourselves. Yes. Sending, a, sending a doctor 
trauma surgeon uh, to Congress is something that, that resonates. And right now, Bert, we are a running campaign. I have, mm. I'm the leading fundraiser for the cycle. Excellent. My team is growing, uh, getting stronger. We're getting local, state, and national attention. This is a campaign that is on a viable path to victory. And uh, I think it says a lot about the district, but also about Texas as a whole. We all want to keep our children and our communities safe yes. and healthy. And that's why I'm running. And again, that website is? That's doc, excuse me, Dr. Brian Williams for Congress.com. And it's DR, is that right? Or do you spell out doctor? D- DR and Brian with an I, Dr. Brian Williams for Congress.com. And four is spelled out F O R. Uh, and perhaps, you know, I, I know that the uh, the gun lobby has argued for years that, uh, and they've been very convincing so far, at least in terms of their power, to say that gun violence is not a public health issue. I suspect you see it differently. It is most definitely <laughs> a public health issue. I mean, by the, by just the basic definitions of public health disease, gun violence is up there. It's been recognized as such by a number of reputable medical societies and organizations. And as a scholar and a frontline trauma surgeon, I can tell you it's clearly a public health issue. And if we want to keep our communities safe, we use a public health approach to address anything that's claiming the lives of tens and thousands of people per year. Um, no, no doubt. We're going, to go, we're, we're going to do this. Oh, that's so logical, though. How can that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there. I'm not the only one. There are many people that are wanting to reduce needless death and suffering due to firearms. Yes. There are many in Congress that are working to do that. Uh, my, my role is just to bring another perspective that is missing. The perspective of a trauma surgeon who has cared for patients and comforted families after gun uh, injuries due to firearms and death. As a military veteran who has trained on these weapons. As mm. also, I, I served as an advisor in Congress and helped to work, craft, and pass the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act last year. Yeah. That was the most significant gun safety bill passed in a generation. So I've had experience at the federal level working on this legislation. And as a scholar, I've written and researched about it. And, you know, we're talking about my book today as well, Bert. So I could, I, I could bring a unique, critical voice to the table and join all of these others that are working to keep Americans safe from gun violence. Dr. Brian Williams, the book is called The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. And Dr. Williams is running for Congress as well. Thank you so much for being with us today and uh, for what you're doing, I must say. Thank you. Bert, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I had fun. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.